What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey, guys. Hope you're having a great day. I am excited to have a special guest joining me today, and and that is uh, Doug Kraus. He is a mortgage lender and specializes particularly in physician loans. And uh, Doug, when it comes to physician loans, Doug pretty much knows all there is to know. He actually even wrote a, a book about it called The Hippocratic House, Do No Harm When Purchasing Your First Physician Home. And he offers that as a gift. I think you can buy it on Amazon, but he will offer it as a gift if you contact them. So anyway, Doug knows physician loans backwards and forwards, and we're going to be talking about some of the pros and cons of the physician loan and some of the things you need to know before you, you know, go about taking one out. We'll also talk about some of the crazy market stuff going on with mortgages lately. If you haven't been paying attention, like the rates are through the roof. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on there and you know how that might change over time so without further ado let's jump into today's episode doug what's up man hey daniel thanks for having me on yeah how you been doing doing good doing good you uh surviving all this mortgage craziness (laughs) it has been a little chaotic with the fed move Uh, a little shocking when i talk to some people and they see rates are two points higher than they were three months ago so that's kind of sticker shock to some yeah, I guess it's been two months, three months time has been up about 2%, right, on average? Yeah, I think uh, probably end of January, 1st of February, I had 30-year fixed rates hovering around threes, low threes even, and you know now we're upwards of five for 100%, no money. Yeah. We're a little different than most that our jumbo rates are quite a bit better than our conforming rates. So like if it was a below 647 limit, mine's actually you know, mid to high fives, where if it's a jumbo with 5% down, then I might still be in the high fours, but it big jump. That's, that's a really unique setup. Um, I guess I want to get into that because that's, I think an important point we'll circle back to, but today I was thinking maybe we talk like pros and cons of physician loan. A lot of you guys listening or physicians, you're, you're thinking about the physician loan probably naturally, but like there are multiple options out there. In a lot of cases, the physician loan is going to make the most sense. Uh, but there, you know, are plenty of cases where it doesn't make a lot of sense. Doug already kind of started to sprinkle in one of those scenarios, which, like I said, we'll circle back to. But maybe before we get into that, let's start with like the advantages of the physician loan, just to kind of get that out there. Well, there's three main reasons why people take physician loans. One, low down payment. So normally you couldn't borrow, you know, a seven-figure loan without putting 20% down. So like in my case, every lender is going to be different rules for their program. But mine, we go to a million dollars with no money down, million five with 5% and 2 million with 10% down. That's going to be 20% down on a typical jumbo loan. So there's your first advantage. The second is lack of PMI. I mean, our default rate on doctor loans is zero. So we don't really need PMI to insure us against loss. So that's a big savings compared to a jumbo loan that was going to have PMI. And then the other almost main reason that people utilize a doctor loan is when they're moving across the country and taking a new job. This one actually lets you start with just an employment letter with, you know, signed contract with showing your salary. 
And this is something that varies. Everybody's got their own set of rules again, but mine's up to 90 days before your job starts. If you've got a signed offer letter, then that's what you qualify on is your future income. So that's really your three main benefits of a doctor loan. So no money down or less money down than the typical loan. You get to avoid PMI. PMI, private mortgage insurance, that's the annoying cost you have to pay normally when you don't have, what, 20% down or... Yeah, and that's quite expensive. And that one's credit driven too. So, and it sucks because it's just a pure expense. It's like just straight up. It's you paying insurance to protect the bank. You're getting nothing yes. out of it except a loan. The bank's the one that's getting the benefit out of it that somebody else is sharing in their risk that if you default, they're going to take on part of the loss. That's what it's for. Yep. And then the simple underwriting or simple process, less rigorous requirements, you know, to qualify would be the third big one, right? Now, the, the other one would be the being able to close before the job starts. Yeah. So yeah. most, a, a regular jumbo loan, you'd have to have job in hand and pay stubs where this one you can close just on that future job. Yeah. Most banks, like the average bank that doesn't do a physician loan is if you're like in training, going into practice, right? You're like, Hey, I got this contract. They're going to be like, you're crazy. Like show me a pay stub or maybe two, right? And something else I see a lot is people like, well, I'm already an attending. I'm already making three, 400,000 a year. Doesn't matter if you're leaving Ohio, moving to California and buying a house in California, you can't use your Ohio income to buy a California house because huh. it's obvious if your primary residence is California, you're leaving that job at some point. Yeah. So e even so with the income and you say, I've got a future job starting in California in two months, I'm going to stay at this job until then. So there's no gap of in income. You can't get that with a regular uh, jumbo loan because the other job hasn't started. And the one you're talking about saying, I'll make my payments with this income, it's going away. Yeah. So in that, in some cases, I guess that third reason in itself could be like kind of a make it a good deal in itself. I mean, sometimes you got to do it what is. you got to do and that's exactly and right. Make it work. You got you know, moving across the country. You got to, it's, there's a lot of moving parts of that as it is. And I know those time crunches can get pretty, pretty tight there. And Doug's got a nice setup because he can work in, what are you, 49 states, right? Everywhere but New York. We're actually adding them here in another month or so. Yeah. So that's really nice because you can kind of maintain a relationship. And, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of you guys are moving quite a bit, especially if you're in training. And even beyond that, there's, there's, you know, typically some moving going on, but, um, you know, that typical mortgage can cause some problems in that setup. Now, the no down scenario is, uh, I think, an appealing one as well for, you know, earlier career or maybe have another house potentially. Yeah. I mean, somebody could have a house that, you know, they have their down payment on it, but they need to move, get their kids settled or whatever, and then sell that yeah. one after the fact. So that where you're doing no money down, you don't have to have that equity. You do have to qualify with both payments, but you don't have right. to strip the equity out of that one by pulling out a HELOC or something to bring the money to the table on the new one. Or maybe once you sell it, you know, your better use of your money is you wanted to spend it to pay off your student loans or something else anyway. Yeah, I think that's probably the most common reason we're seeing. So with our one-on-one -on -one planning with people, most common reason we're seeing people go for that 0% down is they just need to kind of catch up on investing and like sh they want to make sure they're maxing out all these tax shelters and they got the student loans they want to pay off potentially. Um, there's a lot of things that they want or, you know, maybe should do from a financial standpoint to kind of catch up on, on those things and being able to put zero down is appealing, you know, cause they can put the money to work 
uh, elsewhere. But I think that can also get into one of the downsides of it. You know, you have to be careful with that, putting 0% down. Yeah, I mean, if the market pulled back, you're, you know, you could be underwater and then you're stuck and you don't want to be in the same boat people from 2010, 12 were, where yeah. you know, they owed 100% and then the houses went down 20, 30, 40%. And then you're really underwater and you, you know, don't have the option of selling unless you're just sitting on cash on the sidelines that you could write a check to get rid of it. Yeah. I guess that makes us old guys knowing that we both were around in the last real estate downturn. Maybe not that old, but yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm, I am seasoned. We'll say <laughs> seasoned veterans. I started in the business in 99. So I've been around. So real estate can go down by the way. Uh, and can go down a lot, but it's been a really good run and not, we're, we're going to, I'm going to try not to make predictions, Doug, you can make predictions if you want, but I have no idea what it's going to do in the future. I don't think it's going to crash like, like it did. And I think we're in a different environment than then. I mean, I think the last time and I'm going to blame wall street, not the mortgage guys, we were just the middleman, but there was just some garbage loans out there that were packaged. If anybody's ever watched the big short movie, yeah, yeah. it's a very telling, a very accurate portrayal of what happened. That's a great movie. Wall Wall Street was selling, you know, take your, uh, you know, somebody that worked at McDonald's making $10 an hour and saying, hey, you can go buy 10 investment properties. I bought my first house in 2006 or seven. And they're like, man, we don't need anything. Just I mean, I, I don't even remember if I showed, I might've just like, it was very, very little financial requirements. I, in fact, I probably should not have bought the house. Now, fortunately, like my life improved financially and I was okay, but like the, the, the lender, and it was actually countrywide, <laughs> loaned me the money, but it was a very easy process. I was surprised. Yeah. Stated income, stated asset. It was like, hey, stated income, this much that's money. what they called it. Yeah. I make this much money. I was like, okay. And then- I don't have any down payment, like no problem. So we don't really need to see a pay stub and you don't have any down payment and you don't have any reserves. No problem here. How many houses do you want to buy? I mean, that was the market (laughs) then. Yeah, it was, it was a different, different market. Things are QM now, qualified mortgages where banks are actually responsible to make loans that they can see that the borrower has the means to repay, which is a good thing. I hope we don't end up with short-term memory and bounce back to Wall Street getting greedy and saying, well, let's start selling this crap again and you know, we'll make a bunch of money on it. And then the market implodes because that's exactly what happened. It was, you know, as soon as the first person couldn't pay, then it just rolls up hills to the point of if they can't pay, then there's nobody to sell their house to, to buy the next more expensive one. And it got to the point where there's people like, yeah, I can afford to pay my mortgage, but Heck, if nobody else is going to pay theirs, why would I want to pay off my million-dollar house that's only worth seven hundred thousand now? And then they strategically walked away. So I don't see that mess. happening again. I mean, aside from the doctors and veterans, most people, if they're buying a million-dollar house, they're putting two hundred thousand down. The veteran and the doctor are really the only ones. And when I say doctor, I'm including dentists and a few other professions they lump in. But professionals that I joke, you know, my wife's a doctor too. That if she lost her job, she's got five more offers at the end of the day. Only doctor unemployed is one that chooses not to work. So she's going to have the means to continue to pay her mortgage. If something happened, she's not going to be in the same boat of a recession and, hey, we don't have a job for you. There's always going to be a job for doctors. And that's why banks are 
you know, excited to get them as clients. That's why we offer them no money down and no PMI and, hey, we'll even let you close three months before your job starts. So everybody's rules are different on that, that, you know, these are portfolio loans where might be a little quirk here and there that one bank goes to 750, the next bank says we only do 60 days. Some other bank says, hey, we include, you know, pharmacists in our program. But as a rule, you know, the idea behind it is zero risk borrower because they're, you know, have the ability to pay, they do pay. And I've been doing doctor loans for several years and not one is defaulted. The banks love that kind of book of business. Did you, were you doing them in 2008 and they kind of... No, I didn't start probably until... I would be curious. I think... 2013, 2014. I would think... I worked with physicians then and um, none of... Well, we had a handful of people that were like stuck with two houses that were underwater on houses uh, or they got kind of stuck in an area kind of unwillingly-ish, like a long story, but like those sorts of situations, but they definitely were not in danger of, you know, foreclosure. They could make, which is the nice thing about a physician, you have a higher income and you're in demand and you typically can make the payments. It's just a matter of like, that might negatively affect your uh, planning uh, if, if the market were to turn. Yeah. I mean, even physicians though, I mean, part of my book is, you know, from my wife's perspective, and I'm sure you probably fully agree with this is, not to buy the McMansion and put yourself in a position where you have a great income, but then you're still married to your job because you took out a 45 debt ratio. That's, I mean, I don't think that's a good idea for anybody, but I especially don't think so whenever you're making really good money to go to the same level of keeping up with the Joneses. And, you know, if you're making 300,000 a year, you should not be at a 45 debt ratio. I mean, that's just not something I like to see and hate for people to feel like they can't take a vacation or afford a new car if they need it or whatever the case is. So, yeah. So clarify, can you clarify just like, so 45 debt ratio, just specifically, what's that mean? So if somebody had an income of, let's just say for argument's sake, a hundred thousand dollars, keep the math simple. Well, one twenty make the math really simple. Then they make 10,000 a month. Then you can spend $4,500 a month towards all of your credit reportable debts, which are going to be your house payment, your car payment, if you have uh, child support, alimony, anything like that, but not your car insurance, your groceries, paying your taxes, all that's coming out of the 55%. So the bank's looking at, you know, what's going to show up on your credit report, subtract all of that and whatever's left can go to your mortgage. But what I'm saying is great. If you're making 600,000 a year, then don't go buy a two and a half million dollar house just because one of my competitors says you can afford it. Yeah. If you make 600, you can pay off a house in 10 or 15 years. If you buy something for a million or a million and a half, where you go spend two and a half, three million, you're going to be just like everybody else, drug out 30 years and creeping by to make the minimum payments. Yeah. 45% equals house poor. Yeah, exactly. Because that's partially how the lenders set the limit, right? Because like house poor means you're still in the house. <laughs> you can afford the house, but just barely. Right. 45 is you, you can just barely pay your bills because yeah. you have to remember, I mean, if you're in a high income, as you know, you know, you could be in a W2 situation paying out nearly 50% of your paycheck. Your probably take home is 50 to 55% if you're lucky. Yeah. So that doesn't leave much if you're taking 45 of it to pay everything that shows up in your credit report because you still got to eat, pay car insurance and take a vacation and whatever. What does that get you? Is that like, um, I 
GPS at a $100,000 income, you could afford, let's assume you have no other debt. I mean, that's like a million dollar house, right? $4,500 would probably buy $800,000. And that, that's kind of a loaded question because in Colorado, it'd probably buy 900. In Texas, it'd probably buy 600 or maybe even 500. And the reason being Colorado, you know, an $800,000 house, the property taxes might only be 2,500 a year. So they're looking Texas, at the total payment. Be, yeah, five times that. I mean, Texas they have crazy are, property tax. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to pay any state income tax. So right. they have to get it somewhere. So Illinois is the uh, double digit. They get you both places. Yeah, it's like <laughs> high income tax and high property high tax. Property. But Texas is right up there at the highest property taxes. I mean, a, a million dollar house in Dallas is probably 25000 a year in property taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a million dollar house in Denver is probably 5000 6000 max. So you mentioned the book. Some of you listening might might not be familiar with Doug's book. So Doug actually wrote the book on this stuff, which is even even better. And so Hippocratic House, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, my wife, uh, again, she's a physician. Uh, we have a podcast on financial residency, but that's where this is branded through. Hippocratichouse.com or DougKraus.com. We just give it away. And it's uh, definitely not a Grisham novel, but it's a couple hundred pages of... Uh, you know, especially a first-time buyer, physician buyer, everything in it kind of applies to you. There's a chapter in it about credit. There's a chapter about realtors, uh, you know, definitely something about like the settlement, what to expect. You know, it's, again, not a riveting read, but it's a, a very good read for somebody that wants to learn. And the problem is that you could call me and I could talk to you for hours on end, but if you don't know the questions to ask and or you know, if I'm not available at two in the morning when you have time to read this book, then there's just things out of this that if you read it ahead of time before you call somebody like me or, you know, one of my competitors gives you kind of a, hey, I should ask them this. Yeah. And Doug's unique in that, you know, of course, you are in this business as well. So there, you know, you do have financial incentive to, you know, work with people. But like Doug is about as objective as you can get from the standpoint of someone that's uh, working in that industry. So, you know, that's going to be a more object objective assessment of like that process. Yeah. I mean, I tell my wife all the time, she refers business to me, uh, you know, get that's always a good sign me. when your wife will refer your business. That's a good sign. But I always tell people like, you know, there's just niches that certain banks, like one bank might be, Hey, our niches, we want loans under 500,000 and they're going to price aggressively. And other banks are going to be like, we don't really want that business. We want $2 million loans. So that's where they're aggressive. In my instance, I mean, I don't have probably as good a rates as you're going to find with somebody else if it's a $500,000 loan. But if you're over six fifty, dollars where the jumbo limit is in most parts of the country, we're super aggressive. So, and I just tell people that, like you call yeah. me and like, hey, here's my rate, but do your due diligence, make a few phone calls because you might do better. And I don't want to close a loan just for the sake of, you know, winning the business. If I'm, you have an opportunity to save money, I'm actually going to tell you that. Yeah. So we covered some of the upsides of the physician loan. Uh, let's talk about some of the downsides of the physician, mor uh, physician mortgage and relative to other alternatives. So really, I mean, based on some lenders, they're going to price their physician loans higher, meaning they're going to look at a Fannie Freddie type rate or their jumbo book of business and say, well, we're not making them put money down and there's no PMI. So they're going to build it into the rate and the rate's going to be more expensive. Not the case with my bank. I mean, my bank looks at it and says, 
hey, these guys don't default, so we don't need the It's DMI. a 0% default rate. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, they look at it and say, you know, these are loans that we really want. They're borrowing the right amount of money. And, you know, it's a good diversified product for us. So we actually take our jumbo product and then cut the rate by an eighth of a point. Even if it's 100% financing, we're cheaper rate on the doctor loan. That's not true of all my competitors. So most of them are looking at, you know, the downside being the rates, or sometimes some of them are charging extensive fees. Also not the case with mine. I mean, mine's a, you know, our underwriting processing fees 1150, but if you're a million dollar loan, we're giving you an $1,800 credit. So we're actually paying you to take a loan from us. So it just depends. You have to do your due diligence when you're asking the three things that you're looking at when you're choosing a lender is service. Obviously, you got to find somebody you like, thinks it's going to get the job done, rate, and then the closing costs. So the closing costs and or rate with some of my competitors are higher. And that's yeah, the big relative. downside. So it like really, if you're comparing a conventional on a V uh, with 20% down versus a physician loan, it's on average, you know, a, a touch, what would you say higher percentage wise? Do you have a rough idea of like on average, like conventional 20% down versus typical physician loan with zero down? I mean, normally I would say the physician loan is going to be an eight to quarter higher, but like I said, in my quarter case, percent to eight to percent to quarter percent for the average. physician loan. But in my case, we're looking at whatever, Hey, if you're a 20% down and here's the rate doctor loans, that rate minus an eight. That's just the way we price our doctor. You take it all, eighth off the jumbo or both conventional and jumbo? We take an eighth off of whatever you price out as a non-doctor loan. It's an eighth lower if you take a doctor loan. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want a $2 million house with 20% down, you think you want a jumbo loan, but really I'm just like, no, you're a doctor. I'm going to give you that jumbo loan, but I'm going to call it a doctor loan because you're getting an eighth off the rate. Yep. So it's just a cheaper product. But the, I think the only thing that probably is going to compete with a doctor loan would be a veteran that's disabled. If you have that 10% disability and you waive the funding fee, then VA rates, oh my God, I mean, back in March of 2020, my 30-year VA rates at the time got down to like 2.1% for 30 fixed. This bank I'm at doesn't even do VA loans. It takes you know special training for the underwriters and they don't have it yet, but that's really the only one I find really competitive with the doctor loan, unless you're at a bank that, you know, is upcharging their fees and or rate because it's a doctor loan. And that's going to almost always be the case if it's a broker. Um, brokers are a fantastic outlet for 80% of the population for a loan, but for a doctor loan, they just don't have the access to banks don't really uh, offer this through the broker channel. And if they do, I don't know if any of your listeners ran into this back around Mother's Day, North Point was doing them and they pulled the plug and it's like, we don't care if you're closing tomorrow, we stop doing doctor loans. And then Huntington Bank is another bank that offers their product through the broker channel, but go directly to Huntington and you're going to get half a point to a point better rate than you would through a broker. So brokers are fantastic for 90% of the people, but not in this space just because they just can't compete because this is a like, Banks are like, this is our bread and butter. Why would we give this to a broker? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So downside in general, sometimes interest rates can be higher overall in the market. But with your products, it sounds like they're a touch lower. It's worthwhile to compare, especially if you're not working with Doug, you want to compare, you know, alternatives. If you, if you, especially if you can put 20% down, you can ask, you know, what's, how's this compared to a conventional? We have had clients that the lender kind of pushes them to, 
a physician loan and they had 20% down and we're like, no, 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 you need to ask about the conventional loan because in that instance, it was quite a bit lower cost-wise. So see, it's good to look at your options. I think one of the other downsides, this is not like a product downside. It's more of like a psychological, I guess there's a temptation with, you know, going 0% down to kind of maybe get a little overextended and have, you know, 0% equity there and make it, if you have zero dollars elsewhere, right, that can be a problem. If you're really pushing the envelope of this, it's you can kind of get into more trouble the further you go with all this stuff. So it's so if what I'm trying to say is like if you're gonna get into trouble, I'd rather you have twenty percent equity than zero because that's and, and people are you know it's human nature. People have a tendency to you know not necessarily tied up, but just spend the money. So if you're not going to be somebody diligent and invest it and save it and have access to it if you need it, then a hundred percent finance loan, as you're saying, and then you don't have an emergency fund and, or, you know, if it push came to shove and say, I need to move across the country and I owe a hundred percent here by the time I pay a realtor, you need to write a check to get rid of your house. If you're in that boat, then probably shouldn't have took the hundred percent loan. I mean, there's, I, I joke with the acronym we call them as Henry's, which is high earners, not rich yet. And some new attendings, of course, they fall into that. And that's partly what doctor loans exist for too, is yes, you can make the payment, but no, I don't really have any money just yet. You're going to get there, but I am definitely in the camp that if you're taking hundred percent financing and you don't have a lot of money, then start gaining some money quickly. Like, if you're buying, so don't buy a house to where you can't then start setting aside a decent chunk of money to build up your, you know, your, your emergency fund. So if yeah. you're going to close on a house and you're at a 45 debt ratio, you're not really able to then say, now I'm going to save another two, three, four, five thousand a month for that instance where I do want to move across country and I have to write a check to get rid of my house. So it's got its pros, but it's also dangerous if you don't use it right. Yep. It's like anything. We're always trying to talk people into tracking their net worth just as a kind of a good uh, financial discipline. And, you know, maybe not the coolest thing in the world to track your net worth. I don't know. I'm a financial planner geek. But um, anyway, the nice thing about it is when you start tracking it, you can, I would always suggest, you know, quarterly or even monthly. But when you start tracking it, you can really see your progression and how you're doing and how things are growing. And so, Going back to what we we're just saying, like if you're a lot of people get overextended on the house, which limits their ability to grow their net worth, or maybe just their home is the only asset that's growing. Right. Uh, and that's a problem sign. Yeah. And hopefully the home does keep growing. I mean, because like you said, my last 20 years, yes, but I'm well, not last 20, but since the implosion, you know, corrected and since 2012 the last decade, we've seen nothing but appreciation. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case for right. the next 20. Yep. So if, you're, if your net worth is not growing aside from the house, so a lot of people have nice houses in medicine and real expensive houses, and they've been growing a lot. So you got a million and a half dollar house all of a sudden. But what I'm trying to say is if everything else has not been growing because you kind of got a little overextended with the house, I think it would be helpful to be aware of that. And that's why it's good to track your net worth. Because what happens in that scenario is when the, if things go south, you have a lot less wiggle room 
in that scenario. You can't really take much as much of a, a downturn. Whereas if you've been, and, and you're not even, you know, able to save for things like retirement and education and traveling and those other things in life, there are other things in life. And I'm sure many of you have, you know, other areas you, you want to focus on. Uh, but it is a personal decision. Uh, different people have a, a much, put a higher, uh, value on having a nicer house. And, and it is there. I'm, I'm not going to say like, I'm not the guy that says like move to the lowest cost living area just so that you can save money and, you know, try to save as much as possible. I think there's reasons to move to high cost of living areas oh, absolutely. I mean, and family. And that, that makes sense. I think that's what really matters in people's lives. So that's what it's really about is like, you know, being able to match this sort of thing with what you consider most important. I just talked to a doctor the other day that he was saying several of his friends in Salt Lake bought houses for three fifty five years ago, and they're selling them for nine hundred right now. No, that's so, crazy. I mean, I mean, that's where are you going to invest in the market with that kind of return? I mean, sure <laughs> not this year. No, that's crazy, and that's abnormal. That it that, is abnormal. That, that's, don't don't expect to. Yeah, do not replicate that. Um, now those kinds of numbers make me think that there's some bubble going on there, like right. Yeah, but uh, you know most areas are not quite. Salt Lake City has exploded, uh, growth wise. It's been a high hot market. But anyway, do you see any like uh, short term? I, I'm going to try to make you do a prediction here. <laughs> I just said we're not going to make predictions, but I'm going to make Doug make a prediction. Maybe like a maybe not a prediction, but like what are your general thoughts on like where things are going from here? Like with the lending world, do you see any like trends? These I'm curious of your observations. Well, like, you know, before we started, we were just joking about it. I think expert weatherman is going to be right 60% of the time. So yeah. I'm going to preface my guess here. That's with, why I uh, want to know. I, you, most people are 40%. Doug's going to be 60%. This is great. Flip of the coin, 50-50, you're going to be right half the time. I might be right 60% of the time, but I think rates are going to probably continue to climb the rest of this year, but not at a pace that, you know, we've seen year to date, because I think we've seen a huge move. So if you see rates go up another three quarters of a point between now and the end of the year, I'm in the camp that it's just as likely that next summer rates will be lower than they are at the end of the year than they are higher. And the reason I think that'll happen is they've got to do something because as we were talking, you know, Salt Lake or uh, Austin, some of the prices there went up 35, even 40% in a year's time something's got to give, they got to put the brakes on that. And that's going to happen with the Fed stepping in. And when they do it, I think they're going to do things to a point where it's not an exact science. So they're probably going to overshoot. And that's where I think there's just as good a chance that as rates are potentially higher at the end of this year, I could see it being 50-50 that next summer, they actually might have to come back and say, oh, we overdid it. And we just don't want to crash the market. So here, we're going to lower rates back down. So time will tell. I mean, that's that's my 60% guess, but housing prices, there's too many factors that rates not the only, you know, that's driving them that, you know, nobody can sustain. I don't care if you're, you know, cardiothoracic surgeon making a million dollars a year. If rates or prices keep going up 20% a year, the, the surgeons coming out five years from now aren't even going to be able to afford a house. So that's got to stop. But I don't, personally think that we're going to see anything close to what we did in 2012 or 13. I mean, I think if you see a correction, it's going to be stop seeing 20% appreciation and 
hey, if it's flat, then that's a win in my opinion. Yeah. That's what and it is very location dependent too. To historically yeah. these downturns have been big time location. Like I live in Lexington, Kentucky. And historically, Lexington, Kentucky, at least, has had much less volatility than the average market. But that's not to say it's going to change. But like Las Vegas, for instance, has had super volatile. Right. Florida, Texas, um, California, for sure. I mean, those markets that you see the big swings when they, things go up, they do come down. So the ones that go up the Maybe most. Maybe Salt Lake ones, City. <laughs> and, and in fact, speaking of that, you know, we do finance in 49 states, but there's seven states that we limit to 95%. And that's the states that they're looking at and saying, hey, if something's going to happen, it's going to be one of these Uh, seven states. Can you tell us the seven states? Yeah. So it's uh, like uh, Florida, California, Maryland, Idaho of all states. I'm not sure. Idaho is hot. Is it? Uh, That one surprised me. It's super hot. And then uh, Nevada and DC. So those states are, are states that my bank's saying, Hey, we're just going to limit these to 95. So we don't think the market's going to come crashing down either. Or we wouldn't still be doing 100% loans, but we're looking at it and say, if something's going to happen, it's probably going to be these states. I don't even see that happening there. I think you're going to see stop seeing 20% and, you know, maybe see flat or 5%. So as you said, Lexington, I'm in Kansas City. My, it's a steady eddy market is uh, zero to three, four percent was the norm. And Kansas City saw 20% last year, and it saw 18% the year before that. That's just so unheard of for a back-to-back, you know, years like that. Yeah, historically, houses kind of gravitate to inflationary rates. Well, I guess inflation's high lately, but... Yeah, for sure. I mean... Real rates, you know, that's, that's still too high, 20%. But one other question I just thought of before we part ways. I've been hearing people mention the arm more lately, and it's... I guess kind of a unique, um, I guess the reasoning behind it is that like they're thinking or the lenders thinking that that rates are going to go back down. And so they're telling them, hey, let's do this arm product and get that for five, seven years, whatever, 10 year arm. And then when it that way, you have that period of time locked in. But then sometime from then now until then, rates are bound to go down back to where they were or below and then we'll just refinance then i'm curious if you're if you've been seeing that or what your thoughts are on that i see a lot and you know from a bank's standpoint obviously it mitigates their risk if you're giving somebody a 30-year note you're like locked in like if they actually stay 30 years which nobody does but if they did the bank's on the hook and then they have to answer to regulators that they keep enough on their balance sheet to account for that if they do an arm then, hey, after seven or 10 years or five, whatever the length of arm you take, then we can just adjust our rate to the market. So we're not on the hook. So we don't have to keep as much. So of course, an arm rate, you know, there's no reason to take it if you're not saving enough to mitigate, you know, the risk you're taking. But I will say 23 years doing this, that 90% of people do not keep a mortgage longer than 10 years. So that, that may change as we move forward because, in the past 20 years, rates were falling. So and consistently too. Part of what drove that fact that mortgages didn't stay on the books 10 years was take whatever today because next year you're going to be refinancing to a lower rate anyway. Yep. Everybody was refinancing over and over and over and over. Those days I think are gone. I mean, I don't think we're going to see, I think we're going to see an ascending rate pattern for a decade. So, I mean, you're always going to have a pullback. So if you close today at five, 
then there might be an opportunity to refinance at four and a half or if rates go to six, they might pull back to five and a half for a while, but maybe. But really, I like an arm for two reasons. One, either you know that you're not going to stay in the house. So who cares what happens to the rate if you lock in for 10 years and this is a, especially a resident, four years from now, I'm moving across the country. I'm not staying, you know, wherever I'm doing residency, this is not where I want to live. Or two, you make enough money and you were conservative enough that, hey, if my rate does jump to four or 5% on me, I could just write a check and get rid of my mortgage. Those two reasons is why I think an arm makes sense. But otherwise, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to save 200 bucks a month times the next 10 years, that's, you know, $24,000. And you'll actually save another, you know, in that scenario, say another seven or 8,000 that the cheaper rate will pay down equity faster. That's all going to disappear on you in two years. If year 11, your rate jumps three, 4%, and year 12, it jumps another 1% or something, then that's great. You save 30 grand. Up. Yeah. And then starting year 13, you're way in the hole. Yep. So the only other reason would be is, you know, somebody that, hey, this is the only way I can afford the house right now. I'm on a resident salary and in two years, you know, I'm going to be on attending salary. My income's five times as much. So say 200 a month savings today means a lot more to me than a $400 increase might hurt me later. But as a rule, I only like arms if you fit into the category of either right. you're conservative and I can write a check or I'm not going to be here. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, the, I think the problem I have with the whole approach is it's built on this like assumption for it to work, rates have to go back down, and that's like unknown. That's not a given so, like it used to be. Like, let's look. And I always send as it's been coming up. I send them. I send clients. I don't just send them this. I kind of give them some some uh, breakdown of it. But like, I send them. I like to send them the uh, historical thirty-year fixed mortgage rates, like a chart of it. And if you look at it, it's like back in the 70s and it's like way high and then it's been a pretty consistently re reducing percentage rate from the 80s until you know just not long ago going downward so rates have like doug was saying like been for a long period of time been consistently going down and there wasn't huge there was a little bit of up and down but there wasn't huge massive changes so my point is the reverse can happen you know we could have the same exact thing happen in the reverse where it's slowly going up for 10, 20 years. And, you know, in that situation, that's a train wreck. If you get the, you know, five year, seven year arm in, you end up with a house for a really long period of time. So it's not worth taking the risk in most cases. Now I agree with your exceptions there. It's something that comes up a lot is, you know, my book, you know, definitely points this out as you should be asking if there's a prepayment penalty, which they almost don't exist anymore. I mean, those type of loans was, what we were talking about in 12 and 13, the Wall Street loans that, you know, had those type of penalties. But even without a prepayment penalty, the first thing I hear is, why wouldn't I just take this arm, save the money, and if rates go up, I'll refinance. I'm like, well, stop and think about that. If your arm started at four and a half, and that's say that's a half point cheaper than 30 fixed, and then you want to refinance because your arm went to six and a half, it's like, what do you think 30 fixed is? 30 fixed, if your arm went to six and a half, the 30 fixed is probably seven and a half now. Yeah. Or your everything goes arm. up. Yeah. So yes, you can refinance. No, there's not a prepayment penalty, but your flawed logic of you could just refinance is true, but all you can do out of a refinance is start the clock over and stretch it out to 30 years again. But you're not going to go from, hey, my rate went six and a half. I'll just refinance to a new four. Once you get to six and a half, four is way in the rear view mirror. 
Awesome. Well, Doug, it's always fun talking mortgages with you. I've enjoyed it and appreciate you coming on the chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also, check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors.